Alright, good evening, and welcome to Cinema Death Cult. I'm your host, Adam Bolger, and tonight we are gathered together to discuss Brain Candy, the 1996 cult comedy film by the kids in the hall. I'm joined by journalist Alexander Zajcek, whose book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19, was published by Counterpoint Press in 2000, oh, March 2022. Uh, also, in the spirit of full disclosure, I want to mention he's one of my best friends, and we have been talking about recording a Brain Candy episode for just about as long as I've been doing the podcast. But um, for once, our uh, our inaction really worked out well for us because the conversation went from being about this obscure, forgotten cult movie to now being like the table setting for the biggest hit on Amazon Prime. Anyway, Alex, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, man? Good to be here. Yeah, I'm doing great, man. I'm really happy to be finally uh, talking about this, because this has been cooking for a while. A while, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And you were telling me when you were researching your book, which is about, um, well, I'll let you describe it. I think you'll do a better job of it. But you were telling me when you were researching your book, which is about you know a lot of pharmaceutical history, that uh, Brain Candy kept coming to mind right yes and uh for listeners who have never seen brain candy probably a basic explanation there uh is good to start with so basically you want to take that one uh sure it's like a brain candy is uh kids in the hall movie they were a sketch comedy group from canada uh that had about a five-year run of a television show and uh they made one movie, which is Brain Candy, which is a movie, they say it's about depression, but I think it's a lot more than that. It's a movie where uh, it's about the pharmaceutical industry. It's about, it was made in the 90s, and I think it was supposed to be kind of a satire, intended as a satire of Prozac. So it's about this uh, scientist discovering a drug that cures depression by locking onto the brain's favorite happiest memory and making the brain chemistry always be like that so you're always reliving your happiest memory but it leads to pretty you know pretty devastating consequences and it's uh i mean i have a lot to say about yeah we can talk more about the yeah the, the film itself in a bit but just to describe it very basically for people so yeah it's a it's a movie about the full cycle of drug development what they call bench to batch yeah, starts starts in the lab and it ends with the, the post release safety scandal, which yes. is the story for too many drugs. Yeah, and so while I'm researching my book, I'm going through the history, the development of the modern pharmaceutical industry, and yeah. I'm just repeatedly sort of shocked by how spot on the film's depiction of the industry is, both in terms of broad themes and also just tiny details that if it took me years to find these details in researching this book, there's no way that they found them. These were just like fortuitous, instinctive uh, riffs that happened to echo with the actual history of the industry, which is the first remarkable thing about this movie, which there are many, which we'll get to. Yeah. Um, I don't get the impression that it was like a really heavily researched you know, excavation. It was the last minute idea. Was it? They spent months in a writer's room hitting walls and they were almost going to make it uh, like a bad sort of Will Ferrell style movie about a basketball team that was always losing <laughs> against the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> and, yeah. The, and then the they switched generals, gears. Yeah. yeah, they were going to do that movie. And then they switched <laughs> gears and it was going to be a serial killer spoof. Yeah. Like, like a Dexter kind of thing. And then at the last minute, Mark McKinney, one of the kids, yeah. um, came up with the idea of calling it the drug and making it a, a spoof on, on pharma and Prozac, which was just starting to really hit its stride in, in the culture. Yeah, um, uh, And they basically just started writing right away and were shooting within months. So there, there was no 
in-depth research. They just kind of got everything right on the fly, which is, which is incredible. Yeah. It kind of just shows their genius. So that, that, that was all, all those parallels happen intuitively. Yeah. 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 And just to pick one of many, uh, there's a scene where uh, the character that's supposed to be Lauren Michaels played by yes. Mark McKinney gets yeah. word that the new drug at the center of the movie, Gleaminex, the antidepressant, yeah. surpasses penicillin. Yeah. And he screams, we beat penicillin. And his assistant says, we kicked penicillin, sorry ass. <laughs> Son of a bitch, we beat penicillin. We kicked penicillin, sorry ass, Don. <laughs> yes. And there's a line remarkably similar in the history of pharmaceuticals uttered by the CEO of Pfizer in the 1950s, John McKean, which is remarkably similar when they were being sued by the FTC for cornering the, uh, for cartelizing the um, antibiotics industry. So there's little details like that, but also just the broad themes of um, blockbuster drugs and how the industry is constantly on the search for the next major prescription blockbuster, especially psychoactive ones that need to be taken daily. And that history goes back to, you know, barbiturates, tranquilizers, benzos, up through the SSRIs of the 90s, which they were catching in real time. Yeah. And I was thinking, I, I don't want to intrude too much on, like, you, what you know, but I was watching it, and, and it, the opioid crisis, they seemed kind of prescient about that, too. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah exactly. The, um, the character, the, the marketing guru, Cisco, um, yeah. who's, you know, he's the focus of the company's sort of uh, interests and resources and the, the doctors and their, you know, safety warnings are sort of, um, you know, just brushed aside. And one of the the great scenes uh, about that touches on the safety issue is also another echo with the actual history uh, of pharmaceuticals. And that's the character played by Scott Thompson, who says he's invented uh, the drug that has created a, a few flipper babies. Yes. Maybe one of the, there's a lot of dark jokes in this movie. That might be the darkest one. Right. But it's real. It happened. Yeah. There was, there was a, um, a barbiturate, a tranquilizer rather, that was um, coming from Europe in the early 1960s called thalidomide. And yeah. the American company that bought the exclusive rights to thalidomide was pushing it through the FDA. Yeah. And there was a woman in the FDA, a new uh, research analyst who didn't like yeah. the data. She's like, something's not right about this. She smelled a fish and she held it up against the full might of her superiors at FDA and the company. It was just an incredibly heroic young employee, young female employee at the FDA in 1961. Yeah. And it turned out that all of this information started coming out of Europe while she was holding up the approval that there were all these stunted limb births because it was being prescribed uh, to help pregnant women sleep and deal with anxiety, which yeah. were basically flipper babies. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that was a reference to that scandal, which they might have known about. But it's a relatively obscure thing that's been forgotten about. Yeah. Um, and that joke comes on another echo with the industry, which is he was basically just trying to get them to buy into a bigger version of stummies. It was a me too yes. drug, the classic. And that's the whole industry paradigm right now is these me too drugs. They're like, yeah. well, what's the difference from stummies? He's like, well, it's a bigger drug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm listening. Yeah. It's a different color. Yeah. I like, I like. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, up and down the line, there's just stuff like that. Right. Um, and that sort of leads into the patent thing. Cause it's like, they're trying to find all these infinite variations on their, intellectual property they already have right yeah the idea was that they would just re-patent stummies as a bigger different colored drug and yeah. start the start the monopoly all over again right right because mon- the patents are supposed to expire yes and they used to um but yeah. the system has, has been gamed in such a way so that the the industry uh, profit model is, is heavily dependent now on just reconfiguring existing drugs and, and then re-releasing them with no real new therapeutic benefit whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And this, um, and you were saying that this movie kind of tracks the, I don't know, the drug production life cycle. I forget the term you were using, but it's interesting to see it becomes like an over the counter drug about halfway through, right? Yeah. Bench to batch. Um, and the, 
going non-prescription was sort of a stand-in for just the obsession with constantly trying to expand the market for a drug, whether it's adding new indications that are completely inappropriate or global markets um, or in very rare instances going non-prescription. But yeah, yeah. That, that obsession with constantly keeping the profits coming in at whatever cost um, is, is dead on. And, yeah. and then there was the, the safety issue where, of course, the people who took the drugs went into a coma. And the real life analog for that would have been some FDA fine that sounds big to the general public, but is really just like a cost of doing business tax. For these right. Yeah. yeah. In uh, Brain Candy, there's that great scene where they have like huge huge checks that they give out to the families of the of the coma victims yeah. and it's like ten thousand dollars per victim this is like movie made in 1994 so that was probably seemed like a bigger sum but yeah. um that's enough they, they made that cost benefit analysis i mean they don't spell that out but you can say like no they're making enough money that they can hand out ten thousand dollar checks to all these coma victims yeah, they routinely pay billions in fines and yeah. um, you know payouts for criminal uh, criminal cases, even, and it's just you know they just roll with it. Uh, it's nothing. It's their bottom line, really. Yeah, and uh, so tell me about other similarities with real life stuff. Is there any, anything else that, that like uh, that jumped out at you? Well, there's the great scene where um, Don, the CEO of of Oratan, is. It's trying to convince Chris Cooper, the doctor who invented it, played by Kevin McDonald, yeah. why he should be glad that they're going non-prescription, even though yeah. uh, Cooper has reservations. He says, well, did you read the piece in the Times about the ghetto children? Apparently they have horrible <laughs> lives. You want ghetto children to be happy, don't you? I mean, yeah. that's kind of the, the line we get from the companies is, you know, we're, we're, we're helping uh, poor patients around the world with, with our magical medicines and the system is doing wonders for, for humanity. And that's yeah. really what we should focus on and not the corruption, the profound corruption and obscene, um, you know, profit margins these companies are making completely disconnected from normal factors related to uh, most other manufacturing sectors uh, yeah. and their, their bottom line. So, I mean, the whole movie can be seen as like a sort of ridiculous caricature uh, of an industry and it's great in the way that like a newspaper cartoon caricature is great because yeah. it just has that essence of truth yeah <laughs> in it um that is just like pitch perfect yeah i also like because you mentioned the uh, that heroic whistleblower uh from the fda earlier there's a point where chris cooper tries to blow the whistle and in modern like in a very truthful modern way like it just falls flat like the, you know, like media doesn't show up or the media that does show up is comedic. It's like college radio and like teen beat or something. Yeah. And then he gets brought into the big, big gala and it's like, oh, that's right. This is, this is the real uh, precedent, Chris. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's what they do. I mean, they have these massive marketing budgets that now they can direct market on TV. They're blanketing, you know, MSNBC which doesn't yeah. cover a lot of pharma issues. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. I mean, their biggest sponsors by far prime time, their shows are, are pharmaceutical firms. Um, and that stretches all the way down to medical journals. Yeah. Um, who are afraid to really call out the companies. on not providing data to back up their articles in these journals. And, um, you know, the corruption, a lot of it comes from their ability to just outspend critics and critical voices. Um, yeah. And just drown out that message with not just direct ads, but also things like patient groups, you know, paying the family members like in Brain Candy who got the big check to say, oh, this is wonderful. We're so happy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those patient groups that go knock on doors in Congress are funded by pharmaceutical firms to deliver a line. Not quite that stilted and wooden and fake, but in their minds, they think they're actually helping advance the cause of patients with a certain disease, but in fact, they're mouthing industry talking points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you don't happen to remember the quote, the, 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 the real life analog to the we beat penicillin quote, do you? Or like what it he was? He was ranting to a journalist, John McKean, during the FTC investigation. Okay. He's like, basically, 
said, fuck penicillin. You want to go broke? Sell penicillin and streptomycin. Like there no, there's no patents on those. We need to, that's why we have to have cartel behavior on these patented drugs and, and monopoly, monopolize the ones we can because there's no money in this other stuff. Like basically fuck penicillin is what you Wow. Think. So that's even kind of more cartoonish than, than the movie. Yeah. Than- I mean, it's an industry that's hard to caricature because yeah. it's so gargantuan in its power and its core sort of evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a tough one to do, which makes it even more impressive that they kind of got a handle on it. Yeah. Um, and the darkness of the film, which we can get into, which related yeah. a lot to what was going on in the cast at the time was so perfectly suited to it that all these things kind of converged subject, um, you know, cast and mood, everything yeah. just contributed to this being such a, a special film. Although it took a while for people to realize that. Yeah, some yeah we've been, you and I have been like, it, it's kind of a core part of our friendship. Like we've been quoting this movie to each other, like for a long time. And since uh, 1996 when it came out, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think that I I saw it like the first thing I said to you when I saw you, knowing we had both seen it, was this year it is great. Yeah, this year it is great. Which rewatching the movie, I've seen this movie so many times, it still made me laugh out loud. Just the the it, it's so unexpected it's like the start of a scene there's such a, yeah. a oh weird... the, they're minor characters but mccullough's lab assistant the scientist yeah. in the lab and you know mckinney's sort of unnamed nerd and yeah. mcdonald makes a great chris cooper originally that was supposed to be foley but yeah of course he wasn't really involved in the movie yeah, um, and Scott we can get Thompson. into that. Yeah, in a minute. They're all yeah. great. All those scientist characters are, are spot on, and that's sort of the the first great line from them when he says that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you they, you very quickly like set up all their personalities and stuff, and um, so like, uh, but yeah, but it's not just a movie about. I mean, it's it's clearly not a movie that's trying a documentary about the pharmaceutical industry, but it is crazy that they. These things, there's, there, there were these synchronicities when you were doing this deep dive research into the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's because, like they said, um, we'll, we'll talk about it in greater depth. But there's like a new documentary about the kids in the hall that's now on uh, Amazon Prime, along with the new season of their show. And they're talking about how they're trying to emulate Monty Python in in terms of like they do the the TV show and then they do some movies every once in a while. And like you look at Monty Python and their first movie was about like, cause they're all Englishmen. So they do like the most important story of being English, you know, the Arthurian legend and their mm-hmm. second movie, cause they're a Christian. They do fucking Jesus Christ. Like you try to take on these huge, and their third one is called the meaning of life. And yeah. 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 But you know, but they're trying to take on these huge things. And I think that's true too of, of the kids in the hall. Like they're trying to talk about, this movie is about like happiness and depression and like how it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. And why, uh, you know, they were basically making a case that um, the attempt to eradicate depression, you know, may not be a great idea in the end. Yeah. And, uh, they, they sort of lay that out in very stark terms, like at the very beginning of the film. I mean, the credits, if you're going to talk about this movie, you have to start with the, the credit sequence, which has got to be one of the greatest in oh, history. Amazing. I yeah. mean, before they even say produced by Lauren Michaels, you have like 20 jokes, <laughs> eight well-developed characters. Yeah. It's like Zucker Bros level, you know, fast fire. And yeah. then you also have these two lines. You have the nipples of Mother Hope have run dry. <laughs> And then you have McKinney's cab driver saying, life is short, life is shit, and soon it will be over. That's yes. all before the title credits. <laughs> is, that, is, um, is that a say goodbye to, the, to this? Is that before that? Like that, the arguing couple? With, you know what I'm talking uh, about? Which arguing couple? Oh, yeah, oh, no, uh, that's, that's the credits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, say yeah. Yeah. Don't oh, shoot the man. messenger, baby. Yeah, <laughs> I stole it for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that's yeah that's right in the middle of that sequence. Yeah, and that's so because like the argument I think is that this how central depression is to the human experience, and it's sort of like the, that isn't necessarily a depressed couple. 
you know, like uh, you see people immersed in depression, but I'll see like just an arguing couple and you're like, yeah. all right, this kind of feeling, this is what we swim in and this is who we are. And yeah, you were talking about the cab driver before and someone I noticed on my most recent rewatch that he kind of bookends the film. He has a thing like life is shit in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, but then at the end of the movie, he's, he introduces the parade of all the coma victims and he starts honking and goes uh, out of the way for a real human being. Yeah. Cause he's the only one that has like his depression intact. So it seems yeah. to be like, I don't know. You think I'm crazy. I mean, so it seems like an argument that a depression is kind of important. Yeah. I mean, to boil it down, that's, that's probably it, or at least shouldn't be just medicalized away for everybody. You know, maybe yeah. there are certain cases in which certain drugs are useful, but to have this sort of wonder drug for everybody approach who feels a little sad every once in a while. Um, yeah. Is, and it's, is, they also, sh- they also show you how uh, <clears throat> it's diagnosed like clearly way too much from the jump. Yeah. Like um, Scott Thompson's closeted gay character. Mm-hmm. Like he's in denial about being, he's a closet gay man who's in denial. That's not depression. You know, yeah. but they're just going, uh, what's that, like off, uh, off brand with it, like almost from immediately, like they find a, a new drug and it goes everywhere. Like it's like, uh, you know, opioids. And yeah, I, th- yeah, I was saying like the other, like when you see the coma victims and they're just like shuffling along in the basement where they have all, them all hidden in that scene, mm-hmm. um, that I don't know if you've seen like those videos of like fentanyl zombies. Have you seen Mm -hmm. those? Yeah. It seemed like very similar. It was like people locked in this, you know, this um, chemically brought on like paralyzing sense of pleasure, you know? Mm -hmm. And it would get worse with the sort of next generation of prescription pills after the, the Prozac boom of the early mid nineties with the, um, normalization of benzos for everything for anxiety to sleep disorders to just generalize mood um and benzo addiction was far worse than ssris that preceded them Um, yeah which is wild because i remember like people talked about xanax as like a safe cure-all drug as like a safe thing for years and it turned out to be like the most addictive thing in the world yeah i mean basically there were no flipper babies and yeah um, (laughs) They, they went with it and pushed it hard, and the whole country uh, is basically on the stuff. Yeah. It just, uh, it's Gleeminex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you don't get to uh, think of going down to Funky Town at the disco. Yeah. What's amazing <laughs> about that scene, just one of these tiny details in the movie, the, yeah. the, the younger version of the woman who is in the coma from the pill is yeah. clearly her biological daughter. Like, it looks exactly like that woman would look 20 years earlier. She has the exact same face. So yeah. they, they obviously found a mother-daughter team, which you know, they, they didn't have to do. <laughs> no, they pay attention to details. I mean, it's a really well-made film. And the other like, big kind of big picture thing I wanted to say was that they're really good. The other argument is that happiness should be fleeting. You know, like you get these like moments of pure joy and they shouldn't kind of, you shouldn't get caught in them, I guess. They shouldn't. Yeah. They'll be they'll like destroy us if we try to hold on to them too much, and also a lot of those, when you see them from the outside, they seem, it's funny, it's a comedic device, but they seem like shitty, you know, like you're happy about that, like that's your happiest memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is a that's a kind of miracle perfect joke in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, just having sort of like the. Your happiest memory is when you're when like the old woman's kids came for Christmas and left suddenly. Yeah. You know, and mistreated her, you know, while that was happening. And then she's so that's very funny that that's her happiest memory. But yeah, also that's a great scene. Yeah, it's beautiful. But also then you have this argument like, well, you know, maybe what are our fucking happiest memories? You know, they might the moment when you were happiest might have sucked you know and it's not important but this like depression shit which defines our lives kind of is you know yeah Yeah. i know if you think i'm overreaching let me know no 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 man no yeah yeah and uh yeah absolutely and so what how did you because 
how did you see this movie? Do you remember when you first saw it? Yes. I was abroad, I think, when it came out, right after um, I got out of school in 96. And I might have the chronology a little wrong, but I remember hearing about it when I was in Eastern Europe. And I came back, and our friend Cedric had a bootleg VHS of it. Okay. And, And it was like my first week back in the country, and I was like, you have the brain candy movie. Let's watch it. Um, and uh, yeah, I immediately was, was just so thrilled to see them again. Because um, I didn't have a TV when I was in college, and my real brain can't. My real kids in the hall years were high school. Yeah, and they were on HBO. The first wave of kids in the hall awareness, not the Comedy Central post two thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you um, saw it on HBO. Yeah, I was in high school when oh, they wow. first started. My freshman year in high school, I think. And uh, it was, you know, it was kind of like the the revelation show, um, like it was what for a mean? lot of people. I mean, there was just nothing even close to that, like comedy wise. Like, you know, everyone in school watched SNL. In Living Color was one where everyone knew the the punchline, the um, you know, the equivalent of the the taglines, the buzzwords, or whatever, and would do the skits. But Kids in the Hall was the one where, like, maybe there was one other kid in a class who, who watched it and you knew you yeah. were going to be friends with that one kid because <laughs> there was only going to be one and you, you just got along. It was yeah. like that, even though it was on HBO, it wasn't exactly like a secret where you had to do like a, you know, we had to search for it, but it was on late on HBO. And back then not everybody had cable. I used to have to go to a friend's right. house to watch it because we didn't yeah. have cable and we certainly didn't have the paid channels. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember when it was on HBO, um, the crushing your head guy, that mm-hmm. thing had kind of permeated the culture and people were quoting that. And, yeah. Oh, it definitely other, had tech lines, but it yeah. wasn't like everyone in the school was crushing your head. It was right, like right. the losers were doing crush your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but what I was going to say, though, that was it, though. That seemed to be the only thing that reached like this kind of level yeah. of everybody knowing it was the crushing your head guy, yeah. which is... Which um, I think reflexively, like I don't like the head crushing guy because of that. I mean, it's fucking funny, but I can't. That's the one. Whenever I watch, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the popular thing. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. But uh, yeah. So, but what? So you said like you knew it was. There's this specialness about it. There's this rare quality to it. Like, what was that? What were those rare qualities? The absurdism. Yeah. Just pure absurdism and yeah. uh, and dark dark edge. To that absurdism, yeah, um, and the way you know it, it was just kind of felt like a like a secret club kind of thing, um, yeah. But the the crush your head. One of the interesting things in that documentary was the way that character, as annoying as it may be, for the reason you said, may yeah. have saved the show after the first season because they canceled it, yeah. And then it was because Mark McKinney beat um, what's Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling for the ace yeah, based probably largely on crush your head that Lauren yeah. Michaels was able to go into HBO and say, give them one more season. Oh yeah. I'm very thankful for it. And I, you know, I, because yeah, I, I think that the only thing I kind of react to it badly is cause I'm like, Oh yeah, that's the thing people know. Everything mm-hmm. else about it is like what you're describing before, like part of this special little culty club. Yeah. Yeah. I was more likely to scream I have a cabbage for a head if I was going to do anything. <laughs> I was, uh, I think I was, because I was on the next wave of it. I saw it on Comedy Central. Uh-huh. And um, I think, yeah, I think I was, like, there's a, there's a sketch about, like, guys who eat a lot of macaroni and cheese, and then they have tapeworms. Yep. Yeah, that was the one that really hooked me, and that was the one I would quote, and nobody knew what the fuck I was talking about. It was, yeah. it was really like disordered fandom. I'm like, no, this is the funniest thing in the world. Just no, people had no fucking idea. Yeah. Yeah. But then also like, because they were foregrounding via Scott Thompson, like gayness in a way to think that, I don't like sketch comedy definitely was not at that time, you know? No, totally not. Totally not. That wasn't, you know, imagine if I was like a young Clavis and a teenager in 1989, that would have spoken to me you know, enormously, but just as like a, you know, non-gay teenager, I still recognized that it was like, 
you know, more interesting than like whatever the, the straight culture was doing with, with gay issues, uh, which yeah. was mostly making like, you know, gay jokes about AIDS and stuff right. um, at the time. I mean, this was like the eighties, literally it was yeah. the 1980s. Um, yeah. So that's like, they were still sort of in the, the sort of, you know, very square kind of moment in pop culture where it was like, not just square, but like aggressively kind of like mean and um, like that kind of, uh, you know, what you'd now call like toxic mas- masculinity was like yeah. non-apologetic and did have that kind of really mean edge to it. And you could, you could do that and it was okay. So yeah, they talk about that um, a bit in the documentary about how they, they were aware of that and they tried yeah. to, and at the risk of their own success, they were like, screw it. We're going to throw everything we have in the face of that. And we're going to make out, we're going to kiss, we're going to cross dress. <laughs> and Scott's just going to go there with, with, with this character, Buddy Cole. Um, yeah. Because I think it was about contemporaneous with like the two snaps up, like super homophobic sketches on In Living Color and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. when like sketch comedy did like do gay stuff, it was yeah like a gross parody, but this is more like, like, I don't know. Nicer. A gay man parodying himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and but you, with, like, with, you know, from a place of like love and appreciation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned like the absurdism before, which I think I clued into a lot too. Like I, I really love the absurdism of it, but it's got, I think there's like a real dark edge to that absurdism, which I think makes it unique and makes it work. Do you agree? Yeah. You know, there's, there's no question about that. I mean, yeah. everyone was sort of like all these characters and or many of them anyway, were just sort of miserable and screaming in misery and, uh, there's just like these sort of everyday moments of just like, like, you know, these sad lives, this man who's just about to give himself a heart attack because this ham was too salty <laughs> and uh, there's too much salt in the goddamn ham. Yeah. And there's brilliant character work devoted to the, the most like absolutely like meaningless, but most like existentially hysterical topics <laughs> you yeah can, like come up with man uh yeah, yeah. fuck the bank fuck the bank exactly, <laughs> P&O tag. P&O exactly. Tag. yeah that's great because I, I love that one i think that's a great example to pull because it's like you have the one absurdity which is like banks and stuff and you know they they were kind of like sending up normal culture but then you have this guy who's rebelling against normal culture, which you think that they would have some kind of comradeship with, but instead they're they're saying you're you're not effectively rebelling against this. You're just being a fucking dick too. Yeah. 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 But the same, prick. yeah. you're pricks too. So that's why we're gonna play this character so well. Yes. It's almost like you're you're all of our fans wearing the piano guy. But it's okay because we get it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you got to make some money, man, whether you're a bank teller or not. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, who's your favorite kid in the hall? I mean, you know, that's one of those impossible questions. Yeah. But probably I would have to say Mark McKinney and then a close second, Bruce McCullough, close second. Because yeah. McKinney, and I was slow to realize this, but he, I think, really is kind of the – I mean, I think he's the writing genius of the bunch. And yeah. if you, and in brain candy, that sort of comes out one, they were working on like 80% writing power because Dave Foley wasn't involved. And I think yeah. you can see how McKinney picks up all that slack and he plays like, I think it's 10 characters. Yeah. And like three of them are like all time. God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, like, um, who, what's the uh, Marv? No, no. The fucking, the CEO guy. The, Don um, Rorator. Yeah. Oh, the greatest. The greatest. Which is one it's of the greatest um Lauren Michaels there will ever be. Uh yeah, I'd say Dr. Evil is probably a close second. Uh, I don't know. I mean it's derivative, like so that makes it at least a little bit distance between them for me. It's super yeah. derivative. And also, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's as good. I don't think yeah, it's as good. Fair enough. I like I the mean, context around it though, which is funny. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm not yeah. going to completely dis- disregard 
Dr. Evil, but I'm just saying, um, and, and we can talk about this later or now, but Mike Myers talking about kids in the hall and in the, the new documentary mm -hmm. is, I think, pretty remarkable. I agree. I want to hold that thought just for now, though. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to it. Yeah. So Mark McKinney, he, yeah, in the documentary, like he was talking about, like, it almost seemed easier for him to be in the kids of the hall, like easier for him to create and do these characters. Like it seemed to flow more for him almost. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, yeah, he was in that troupe with, with McCullough. They were yeah. sort of the pairing. And then in, in Toronto, it was McDonald and Foley. And um, McCullough was more like um, concepts and McKinney was more characters. I think yeah. that's how he's described it. Yeah. Um, or was it vice versa? I, he said he was more, uh, McKinney said he was more characters. Yeah. Which is in, and, and he said that was his like gift, which is kind of funny when you said that he was the one that came up with the concept for brain candy when he was kind of like soft peddling his, um, his conceptual genius before. I mean, he yeah, came up he was, with a great concept. Yeah, I think maybe he was being a little bit uh, too self-effacing. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, they're Canadian after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, I mean that's some of those impossible questions. But I mean they're all, you know, they're all amazing. When yeah, all I agree. Cylinders. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing about Brain Candy compared to the rest of their material, which I only realized after watching the documentary, is like. Because um, Dave Foley was on the outs of the group and estranged from them while they were doing it and while they're writing it too, there's no um, pairing off of uh, Kevin McDonald and David Foley mm -hmm. which in the movie, which is like a staple of the rest of their stuff. Yep. Yeah. 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 The only the interaction really is the is when he goes up to the CEO's big table and is in with him in the elevator. But they, yeah, they, they weren't speaking in that scene, which is maybe, you know, they weren't speaking in real life either. It's, it's pretty yeah. amazing. That's another thing that's amazing about the movies. Like, they were all more or less estranged at that point. And the fact that they could pull that off, even if, you know, they were allowed to infuse the movie with it, it still worked. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, they, I think Mark, oh, go on, please. No, I was just going to say, I mean, they, it's not an exaggeration. They literally weren't talking to Foley at all. Like there's, there's footage of them in the cafeteria line and they're all just sort of like <laughs> ignoring him and Foley turns to the camera and he's like, yep, no one's talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is wild because he, yeah, he was doing news radio. I don't know. Had, have you ever seen news radio? Do you like that show? I had not. Okay. I'm a fan of that show. I don't know if you would, if it would be to your taste, but I like that show quite a bit. It was like of all the nineties kind of like zippy set in New York, uh, you know, dialogue, one liner, like friends and like Frasier right. or, um, Seinfeld. It's kind of like probably the best of that group. Okay. Like, yeah. Like Dave Foley, I guess he was very active in rewriting dialogue and stuff. So it, it, it's, it, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure it is. If he was that involved, I just, uh, I sort of had a, prejudice against sitcoms yeah, yeah also i wasn't really around a whole lot i just never went back to it yeah country, i mean well it's retrospectively kind of tainted by um being the launch pad for joe rogan uh no that wasn't his launch pad he was making comedy in the in the 80s in boston around boston i remember oh really yeah he was way back okay but yeah that was the that's the only show I, well, he was on it. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of funny that he was on it, you know, uh -huh. like where, and he turned out to be, uh, a, you know, a billionaire. But anyway, we're, so yeah, it was a really troubled production. Like, and it, it has this backdrop, uh, brain can is backdrop of darkness against it, which, uh, yeah, they weren't getting along with Dave Foley. I think, um, Kevin McDonald had just gone through a divorce or something. Mm -hmm. and, His wife left him. Yeah. Straight up left him, yeah. Oh, wow. And Scott Thompson's uh, brother committed suicide? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so they, these are not, like, these are not guys that are ready, sounded like they're ready to go out and do a zany comedy for the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. 
I think the thing with Lauren Michaels wasn't great either. They wanted to do, he wanted them to do like a, a very sketch, sketchy uh, HBO character driven thing. Cause this was oh, like yeah. at the height of his lame SNL spinoffs. Yeah. Of like every second, you know, B rate character in SNL got a movie and yeah. they wanted them to do that. They wanted to do like a crush your head movie kind of thing. <laughs> and they were just like, absolutely not. Yeah. No yeah. night at the Roxbury for them. No, no, yeah. no, no. Um, uh, we're not going to be Leon Phelps, which was probably the best of those bad movies. Yeah, um, that, I, I don't mind that one, to be honest. Yeah, no, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> it's the best of them. But yeah, that run of awful spinoffs, was, was, he was driving them for that, and, he, and they resisted him. So it's a testament not only to the ability to like work with people that you're having this heartbreaking friendship breakup with while dealing with personal tragedy, but also pushing back against your biggest and most important ally in yeah. show business and basically say, screw you. He, they said, screw you, not just to Michaels um, in terms of how to do the movie, but also Paramount who wanted, of course, Cancer Boy removed. <laughs> and they said, no, we're not going to do it. Cancer Boy stays. Yeah. And they, paid, they paid for their lives with that because they didn't, I, I think that's why they didn't Paramount, Fox Paramount didn't promote it. Yeah, because the movie was kind of effectively buried. Like that's why I was asking you about how you encountered it. And it's interesting you saw it on a bootleg. Like you saw it on a bootleg, you know? Yeah, well, you know how you used to like people used to copy VHS tapes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But still, like I don't, I, I, I think I had a lot of trouble tracking it down. Like I remember being really excited when I hear was gonna heard it was gonna come out, and then just couldn't find it anywhere. I know this is before the internet, obviously, but like, yeah, like, you know, going to video stores and trying to, maybe I even did a mail order thing or something. Hmm. You yeah. couldn't find it even in, in like Blockbuster? No, I don't think so. Not huh. for a while. Cause I, yeah, like it came out and it was supposed to be in theaters and I have no idea if it ever played in any theaters. It certainly like didn't play. In, I think it, it got pulled after like a week or two. Yeah, and probably not everywhere either. Yeah, you know, you know, like it probably played in like Calgary. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, so I didn't have a chance to see it in the movie theaters, and then like trying to hunt it down on video is very hard, and then finally seeing it. And now, even today, like I was looking this up, like we've talked about this, it's not streaming legally anywhere. Right. Like you can't rent it. Like from. Yeah. Like you can't. Yeah. I did pirate bay it. Yeah. Oh really? Mm-hmm. I found it on uh, on YouTube. It's still up on YouTube somehow, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Is that they don't because uh, now they're being more aggressive about copyright strikes, right. but they don't want brain candy enough to care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the one drawback with that is like it. It's a really well done movie. Like it's a really cool like visual movie. Like the colors are great and the camera work is really good. And I feel like watching it on YouTube, like it just, you know, pixelated and bullshit and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny, like, yeah, it's funny because it's almost like they wanted nothing to do with this movie. But then, flash forward to tw- 2022, the kids in the hall come roaring back to Amazon Prime. And, uh, well, they had reunited for like that like movie thing that like limited series thing. No, Death murder comes to town. Death comes to town. Yeah. Death comes to town. Yeah. And then they, then they're back on us as a sketch show, uh, on Amazon prime. And I was so surprised when it led off with a lot of heavy discussion about uh brain candy. I thought they'd just like not want to talk about it. Yeah. Apparently they needed to close that wound to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to come back as a group. But yeah, it was strange to see. All of a sudden, I was like, I saw it here and there, and I'm like, wait a second. Everyone's talking about the kids in the hall one and two. They're talking about them the same breath as Monty Python as legends. And I'm like, wait a second. Has that much time passed? And yeah, (laughs) apparently quarter century is enough time to, you know, go from uh, active second baseman to Cooperstown. (laughs) What did you think of what do you think of the new Amazon Prime version of the of the Kids in the Hall? I thought it was great. I mean, I yeah. was I saw the preview and I I was sus- suspending judgment. 
Um, yeah. I thought it could have gone either way based on that. I don't think it was well done um, preview, but yeah, no, I think there's as much gold in this as you could reasonably expect and was in a typical season in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt. Yeah. I agree. And what, what were there any standouts for you since it's probably fresh in your memory? Uh, I love the, the recurring, um, skit with the chefs in the, in the high end restaurant. <laughs> um, Dave Foley's doomsday DJ is fantastic. Yes. I love that. Like, who's the mutant now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, McDonald and, and, uh, Scott Thompson, I think it is, is, is the criminals who, um, take the clothes off. Oh yes. Section. It's the first episode. I, think. I mean, I don't, every, every show, uh, of the eight episodes, I think has like one or two keepers, which is, which is plenty. Yeah, absolutely. I lo- How'd you feel about the Tadley one with Mark McKinney? Uh, I think it might have been funnier 25 years ago. Okay. When those, like, I mean, I liked it, but yeah. um, I feel like the moment for, for that was like during the first, I think that was like, might have been an outtake from 1993. Yeah. <laughs> Just never <maybe>. did it. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, the spoof of those like uh, teen educational mini commercials is, is, uh, is a funny idea and, and McKinney does that sort of teen girl or actually that's not who he's playing in that, but yeah, no, I, I, I that's like a B skit for me. It's like a B, yeah. B plus. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was great. There was, um, Oh yeah. Just, I'm going to turn my question back around on me. My, I think my favorite kid in the hall, which like you said, it's an impossible question, but I think that, um, I, I, I have a lot of loyalty for Bruce McCullough. Yeah, I expected yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, you know, he's uh uh an identify an identification person in comedy for me as a short guy uh who also has very similar hair to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, but he has like that fucking like glint in his eye, you know, and you like you like he seems to be just like out of a little bit out of every moment and you yeah. don't know where he's going to go. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Also, all of his like high school like um, heavy metal kid sketches really yep. spoke to me. Yeah, yeah. And of course, hey, you're n- you're not a real Doors fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was happy they brought back the Eradicator. The I was one. delighted. Yeah, that was terrific. Yeah. I thought the way they did it was great. He wakes up in the hospital. <laughs> the Eradicator. Yeah, anytime because he just has to come out and do a voice, and I'm already there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ar- I'm already on board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the um, I get a, sometimes I get sli- slightly impatient with uh, Dave Foley and, and um, Kevin McDonald because they're doing like they do a lot of like who's on first kind of stuff. Yeah, I like the meta skit they did where Dave Foley is trying to sell the Kevin McDonald skit at the yes. second hand shop, <laughs> and it turns out they're good. living in a Kevin McDonald <laughs> skit. And Dave yeah, like, why'd you give me a southern accent? You know I can't do it. <laughs> he's trying to get out the door and he and he can't he can't escape yeah. that oh yeah it's terrific yeah and i like that line too which were towards the end where he's like how can you do this to me i have a family and they're just learning to love me yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the other skit they did together that was great was the imaginary girlfriend yes yeah yeah oh the other thing was like about the original show and they do they carry this on too with the amazon show is it's like they, they, it w- you can tell they love like movies in a really smart way. Like, you know, like they're really, like in the documentary, um, Bruce McCullough name drops Tartofsky for like, Love and Sausages. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he brings a lot of that to it. Yeah. He's, he's the director of them. And yeah. uh, I think that was his idea to start pushing it in that direction. And Lauren Michaels might have too, because that was around the time that he started doing that on SNL where they do like these um, black and white, really well, like shiny produced segments, especially with, um, oh Jesus, Bill Hartman. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. I bet there might've been some influence there um, from I, him. But I feel like the kids in the hall, like their stuff when they're in, you know, cause they'll do like a five, they did like, a, I think like a 20 minute kind of German expressionism kind of sketch with like no jokes in it or something. In the new you season? Know, no, no, in the old one. I think we're, I think mm-hmm. we're the sausage one. 
that's not German. It's more like, yeah, the Tartofsky thing. But it's, like, they seem readier just like, okay, we're going to do, like, an art film. Yeah. It might not just have a joke in it, but it might yeah. have, which made Mark McKinney seem- has a skit in the new season where it's basically just a dream skit of, like, oh, yeah. these are the people who, are, who know me, and they're all yeah. wearing masks. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a classic example of, of that. Yeah, I was told that's exactly the thing I was thinking of, like friends of Mark, and they're all like wearing masks and and have flags. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrific. It's not like like uh, there's no jokes in it, really. It just like this heightened absurdity, and it I don't know. It always seemed like cool to me, like that, like the little interstitial um, black and white footage that they had. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah and, yeah, I loved all that shit, you know, and that it, it it definitely felt like something cool. Like it felt when I was watching as a kid, it's kind of a lonely kid, you know, watching uh, Kids in the Hall reruns on um, Comedy Central by myself, you know, like yeah. th- thinking of this. This is what seems cool to me. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, think about it. What's the alternative for on, for a long time? It was like, what's the interstitial in an SNL episode? It's It's a publicity shot of Madonna. Yes. Like that was, that was the contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Madonna, she shows up in the documentary just for a scene, which was very funny. She does. Where is she? They, they mention her in passing there. Cause when, when I didn't know until that documentary that Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney were writers on Saturday Night Live for a year for that bad year. Yeah. Was that the year with like, um, Anthony Michael Hall and Robert Downey Jr.? Like yes. That, yeah, yeah, it was 80, okay. 86. Yeah. 86, okay. 87. Okay. That would make sense because there's, you can see a little bit of attempts at absurd humor on it, but none of it. Randy very... Quaid, I think, was like the one shining light during that cast. Yeah. I think that was the same decision. And John Lovitz, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I think people really were like, oh, he's the star, which is, yeah. seems fucking wild. I'd love yeah. to know which, ep- which skits they got in. Yeah, me too. During that season, but they don't mention that. I haven't seen yeah. that anymore. But yeah, like they said, it was a bad experience. But that was just like one of, and, and the Madonna thing was like they show like a snapshot of Madonna, and they said like Bruce McCullough described like writing a scene for Madonna, or you know, I was like, all right. But um, that was an I I that was a really good documentary. Yeah. Yeah. You recommended it to me, and I was a little skeptical, to be honest. I was like, oh, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I learned stuff. Like, and uh, you you already brought this up. um, But yeah, Michael Myers is interviewed in it, and it's kind of revelatory. Yeah. I, I was struck by how genuine his sadness is in his interview segments over. Yeah not being included. He did a couple of things with them on stage in Toronto and at that club Rivoli and, and Queen Street or whatever, but they basically never asked him to join. And he, yeah. and he looked genuinely bummed as if at this stage in his life, he realizes that he will never be loved and celebrated <laughs> the way kids in the hall are and are now entering history. And that he's yeah. sort of viewed as like this sort of clownish time capsule from the nineties where everyone yeah. in the world does the, the pinky in the mouth Dr. Evil, including, you know, George Bush. Yes. But now the recognition is coming for Don Vorator's character as the sort of God level Lauren Michaels. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That will never be equaled. And also just the fun they had as a group, which is sort of the dream for everyone to be in like Led Zeppelin. And Mike Myers is kind of like by himself and his midget actor died. And yes. like, he's just kind of this lonely guy who's looking back and be like, God, I wish I was in kids in the hall. And the, right. and the way he didn't even try to hide that, I thought was just amazing. Yeah. He's very interesting as you would think that with, uh, with his impact, and with his success, you know, like, like Austin Powers and the Shrek movies and Wayne's world and whatever, you would think that that'd be enough for him. No, it's, it's killing him. Cause he knows it was all bullshit. Yeah. In comparison, he, he even said it. He came out and just said it as the most, in the most stripped down way you can. He said, the kids in the hall did it. They did yeah. what everyone wants to do and nobody does, but they actually did it. Yeah. And but I it, am jealous as hell <laughs> and God bless them. 
Uh, but wow, I wish I had been against them all. Yeah. I mean, it's it because he's not shy about like voicing his jealousy. As I, and I think that, I think that he was kind of like a really cutthroat competitor kind of guy when he was young, but now mm-hmm. he's kind of like been through therapy and shit. Now he's more reflective, yeah. but, and also probably like been a little humbled by some failure, yeah. which, uh, but like, I, I don't know if you ever saw the Chris Farley documentary. Mm-mm. It's, it's, it's good, but you know, you have to go like, I don't know if you like Chris Farley, but yeah. like he, he's interviewed in it. Mike Myers is interviewed in it and he was in, um, second city the second city troupe with with chris farley oh i didn't know that. yeah yeah and so first like saturday Night live plucked mike myers they recruited mike myers out of second city and then um you know then he gets to the saturday Night live like so is there anybody else that we should be looking at at second city and he had been you know working alongside chris farley and like mike myers like he tries to be like super precise in his comedy and he like really works to get the timing like down to like the second and get the voice exactly right and you know try to really like think and plan and he you know what's going to be a laugh and he would see chris farley just like effortlessly get laughs whatever he fucking did yeah you know, chris farley just shout some shit over the top of his head and the entire like crowd would be belly laughing so they you know so he gets plucked for saturday night live and then they're like is anybody else we should look at and he said like it was very interesting like he very reluctantly very reluctantly, it's like, yeah, okay, like fucking Chris Farley. You got to, mm-hmm. you know, look at this guy. He's so great. But, like, and even it seemed to even be eating him up in that moment when, like, with Chris Farley long dead. Yeah. You know, this, so, he, yeah, he's an interesting guy. And that was, in that sense, like, he does have that, like, raw nerve, which you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect from, like, you know, you're fucking Austin Powers, man. Everybody right. fucking knows Austin Powers. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's good... like successful comics all have that like grievance. Like Jim Carrey is still kind of upset that he got he was never chosen for SNL, and and Kids in the Hall is sort of the the, the Canadian version of that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. They hold on to these slights. Yeah. <laughs> on the subject of SNL, yeah. Um, Lauren Michaels, I didn't realize this, but he's sort of the villain, and then he redeemed himself and became the hero for the first time with uh, making the kids in the hall possible because when he took McCullough and McKinney from Toronto to New York, it was basically over. And in that season, over the course of that season, watching them, he realized they have to be together and he basically reunited them, made it possible for them to get back together and then said, let's get you your own show as five. Yeah. And then he did it again after they got canceled when he went back and made the case for them to get another season, which was the key season. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of wild to me. You're I like too, because. So when you, you know, talk about the genius of Lauren Michaels, like you can kind of see it in the, in the backstory of the kids in the hall in a way that he's, he's low key about it and maybe yeah. doesn't make a big deal about it, but uh, maybe that's what people mean when they're like, he's you know making things happen that you just don't quite understand. Yeah, but I think also you have to remember that that was Lauren Michaels at his low ebb too. Like he wasn't he wasn't a legend yet, you know. He yeah. was, like and he had left Saturday Night Live and returned after this absence, like after failing elsewhere. And then he what came was back. The, what was the year of his return? Uh, I think the year of the first bad show, the one okay. where they were. I think that was the year that he was back. Okay. Because he wasn't there for like Eddie Murphy and stuff. Right. That's when he was gone. Um, and so he comes back, so probably like mid-80s around there, like probably 86, 87. Um, and so then he sees that it was, I think it helps that he was not like super powerful and sort of had a little bit of self-doubt, mm-hmm. you know, that he probably lo- would lose as he got more successful. Because right. like you got to think about like what he does, like where they pull all these comedic people from different comedy troops and stuff. And it seems like I'm, I'm, there, there must have been dozens of people plucked from comedy troops, and then they're put on Saturday Night Live, and then the comedy troupe fell apart, and then they weren't that good on Saturday Night Live anyway. Mm-hmm. But in this case, <laughs> in this case, he's like, no, 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 the comedy troupe is so good, I need to reunite them. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's interesting to me. But yeah, and so also the other thing about the 
besides telling the story of the kids in the hall, it's it, the documentary was also pretty fascinating and how open they were about not just their relationships with each other, but like their kind of tr- individual tragic backstories were all kind of surprising. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the Kevin McDonald character in Brain Candy, uh, the little kid whose dad uh, comes home and kills himself, the alcoholic, was apparently yeah. real. Um, I think two other guys had alcoholism in their families. And then the the mother load of tragedy with um, Bruce McCullough between the the brother just killing himself to cancer and when he was a kid survived a school shooting in elementary school. The oh, that's, Scott, that's Scott Thompson. Sorry, Scott Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. My bad. Oh, it's okay. Um, and he says that in that super poetic way where he's like, yeah, that bullet whizzed by me, but I felt like it was following me for the rest of my life. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then you got the, the stomach pains from gastric non-Hodgkins. Yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, all that um, kind of personal tragedy, I mean, obviously kind of hangs over the show in, in a way that, um, maybe isn't that easy to put your finger on and explain, but when you step back and you when you think about it, you're like, yeah, it's 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 this is like a very even balance of like major key comedy with like super sophisticated minor key stuff going on in the the uh, counterpoint. Um, yeah. If that's a if that makes any sense musically as a as a metaphor. No, uh, for sure. But it, that mix is just, you know, I don't know anyone else does anything even remotely like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let me see. Uh, so what else should we talk about? I think we're at the, I think we're at the end of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> we covered a lot of ground, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope they do more seasons. I don't know if they're going to do five in a row, um, but I hope know. so too. Oh yeah, that was something I wanted to talk about. Was they they after all the animosity that they all like they're all real estranged from each other for a while, but now they seem to be like really warmly affectionate to each other. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's moving and touching, and you know, it's hard to imagine that they would be able to hold a grudge you know, that long, they're just all like, you know, good, good guys fundamentally. And they had such a, they've done, kicked so much ass together. It's like, how do you, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can probably drop a million examples from bands that, you know, have managed to do that. But yeah, I think as long as they're alive, like they said, you know, until the first one of us dies, we're going to keep doing this. Um, there's a, there's a song that Kevin, if, I don't know if you looked at the extras, there's like one extra thing on the, Amazon Prime page, and it's like Kevin McDonald singing a song, explaining the kids in the hall, and then at the end he goes, "We're gonna do this until one of us dies, and it'll be Dave." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what I was just referencing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That one's terrific. Yeah, but yeah, it's good. I mean, it was very. Yeah, so I'd recommend. I think that the new Amazon Prime show. I agree with you. I think it's like on the same level as their the original kids in the hall like it's not that much of a drop off in quality which is rare which is rare for this kind of comedy reunion like usually like as talented as they are when the mr show guys did redid mr show on netflix it wasn't that good you know yeah. like now um no the, but the kids in the hall they brought it they mm-hmm. they really brought all this stuff and put all it and it's great i hope yeah i hope they keep doing it and uh i i found it very touching their friendship and their relationship yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was very because they're they're very like a very unsentimental form of sentimentality towards each other like bruce mccullough was talking about like comforting scott thompson when he was crying oh that was the, hysterical yeah. And he's like, you're not going to die. Yeah. Dave's going to die if he sends back all that bad wine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so great. I mean, just, and he's crying while he tells it. 
So yeah, yeah there's this like levels of uh, emotionality and I don't know, just really good. Yeah, that that scene, um, that mental image is probably as good of a place to end as as we're gonna get. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, I believe that you want uh, fuck the bank on your tombstone. Was that right? Uh, on my uh, aquamation site, whatever yeah. <laughs> ends up being. Let's let's call it a contender. Let's okay, call it a contender. Oh no, the haircut is never over. That was haircut the- is never over. Is probably probably ahead of fuck the bank. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Haircut can never be over, man. <laughs> All right, thanks, and, man. And that makes the perfect place to end the show, which can also never be over. Yep. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. This is uh, Adam and Alex. This is this is what we're like when we're hanging out. <laughs> Peace, everybody. Bye.